I don't know if you've uh, ever heard anyone say, you can't believe the Bible because it's full of contradictions. I'm sure you probably have heard that at some point. So if you haven't, just talk to a few um, uh, unbelievers and you will hear that pretty soon. Just go and look on the internet and you'll see that claim that you cannot believe the Bible because it's full of contradictions. And in the passage that we read just a few moments ago, uh, we have an example of what many claim to be a contradiction in the Bible. Uh, In Mark chapter 9 and verse 40, Jesus says, He who is not against us is on our side. He who is not against us is on our side. And some smart, alecky people will go to the book of Matthew. And they will point out that in Matthew's gospel, chapter 12 and verse 30, Jesus said, he who is not with me is against me. So in Mark chapter 9, verse 40, he says, he who is not against us is on our side. But in Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, he says, he who is not with me is against me. And many will say, well, here you go. Here is a clear contradiction. Uh, The Bible doesn't know what it's talking about. And worse still, Jesus himself doesn't seem to know what he is talking about. Uh, But we need to be careful. Uh, We need to be careful and slow to judge God's word. Because it's often the case uh, that two things (coughs) that initially appear to contradict themselves actually proclaim the truth. Just because two things seem to contradict doesn't mean they cannot both be true. In fact, it's very often the case that truth can seem contradictory. The word we use for it is paradoxical. Life can often be full of paradoxes. Some people say, don't they, that truth is stranger than fiction. And paradoxes do exist. A good example of this is actually in the Bible itself. If you read... In the book of Proverbs, chapter 26, verses 4 to 5, you'll read these words. Uh, The author of Proverbs says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly, lest you also be like him. Next verse. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. In verse 4 of Proverbs, chapter 26, he says, Do not answer a fool according to his folly. In the very next verse, he says, answer a fool according to his folly. And some people can and do scoff and say, it's contradiction. But why do people pause and think, 
Surely the author of Proverbs, who was clearly not an idiot, surely he knew what he was doing when he wrote what seems to be a contradiction in one verse, which contradicts what he wrote in the previous one. Perhaps a wiser approach is to think, what is the lesson being taught to us? What is the wise author of Proverbs, in this instance, teaching us? Maybe there is wisdom here that we would not have otherwise, and that is indeed the case. Uh, What the author of Proverbs is teaching us is that two things can be true when looked at from different perspectives. Two things can be true when seen in different contexts. In fact, you could say that's what wisdom is in whatever situation we have to demonstrate it. The book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 3, says there's a time to tear and there's a time to mend. There's a time to laugh and there's a time to cry. There's a time to dance There's a time to refrain from dancing. And it's teaching us that there are some things which are good to do in some circumstances, which are not good to do in others. It's not a contradiction. It's just teaching us the complexity of life. And there's an example in the New Testament as well. Uh, If you know your New Testament, you'll know that Paul very clearly taught that we are saved by faith alone. We're not saved by the things we do, the money we give to charity or uh, the family we're born into or anything that we do. We're saved simply through faith in Christ, which itself is a gift from God. But James, in his letter, he says, faith without works is dead. And again, some people point and say it's a contradiction. Paul says we're saved by faith alone, but James says faith without works is dead. But it's not a contradiction. Uh, James is simply teaching that faith that does not flow into works is not faith at all. Or as someone in the past has pithily put it, We're saved by faith alone, but not faith that is alone. Uh, Faith will produce works which don't save us, but demonstrate the faith in our life. Or someone else has described it. Uh, Paul and James, if you like, are pointing in opposite directions, but they're not fighting each other. They're standing back to back, fighting different enemies opposing opposite errors they're defending the same truth from but different but from different perspectives it might seem like a contradiction but actually there is things to there are things to be learned when we delve deeper into what is being said and it's the same here uh, it's the same here when we look at these two things christ said which seem initially to contradict But when we dig deeper, we see, do not. Jesus is teaching truth, 
but from different angles, in different circumstances, from different points of view. In Matthew chapter 12, uh, Jesus had been casting out demons, and people were amazed at the power and authority of Christ. But the Pharisees were jealous. Uh, They hated Christ. They hated all that he did. And so to undermine him, they told the people, and they said that Jesus wasn't a messenger from God. Instead, he was commanding the demons through the power of Satan. It wasn't God's power. It was Satan's power. And Jesus rebukes them. He says, that's impossible. It's impossible for Satan to cast out Satan. The fact that Jesus was able to cast out those demons proved that he was from God. His actions demonstrated who he was. And Jesus goes on to teach. And he says that the way you respond to me, talking to the Pharisees and to all the crowds round about, he says, the way you respond to me will reveal your heart. I am like, if you like, the watershed. How you respond to me reveals who you truly are. There is no fence to sit on. You can't be uh, undecided about Jesus. You're either for him or you reject him. You're either on his side or you are against him. There is no halfway house. Either Jesus is Lord of all or he is not Lord at all. There's no middle ground. That's what Jesus is teaching in Matthew chapter 12. In Mark chapter 9, the passage we've just been reading, however, the context is different. Uh, As we read, the disciples had seen someone, someone else, someone who we don't even know the name of, and he had been casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And we can see that he did that successfully. The demons were coming out as he commanded them in the name of Jesus. The problem was this man wasn't part of the group of the disciples. And the disciples, who don't come out very well, you may have noticed in this whole chapter, they're not the most praiseworthy individuals, especially here. Uh, But they come to Jesus and they say, we saw a man casting out demons in your name, but he's not one of us. He's not in our group. So shall we forbid him? Shall we tell him not to do it? In fact, it doesn't, they don't even ask. They say, we have forbidden him. We've told him, don't do that, because you're not in our group, the group of Jesus' immediate disciples. But Jesus says, no. Don't forbid him, because he who is not against us is with us. Do you start to see how the context is different to Matthew 12? The mistake the disciples made was that they thought because this man wasn't part of their group, therefore he could not be with Christ. They confused themselves, their group, with Christ. 
And they thought because this man was not with them, therefore he could not be with Christ. But Jesus makes clear, this man is with me. He may not be in your group, but as he puts it in verse 39, do not forbid him. For no one who works a miracle in my name can soon afterward speak evil of me. Jesus is saying, this man is on my side. He is not against me. He's just not in your group. This is a mistake which is as old as the hills. Um, Do you remember the prophet Elijah? The prophet Elijah, who uh, accomplished great things uh, through God's power. He stood on Mount Carmel and he challenged the prophets of Baal. And uh, under God's instruction, he instructed that the prophets of Baal build their altar. And then he would build his altar, or God's altar. And they would see who was the true God. Was it Baal or was it God, the true God? And the prophets of Baal build their altar, and I think there's about 300 of them, I forget the number, and they dance all day long, and they cut themselves, and they cry out to Baal, and nothing happens until they all fall down, exhausted at the end of the day. And then Elijah stands up, and he prays to God, and immediately fire comes on the altar. And before all the eyes of Israel... God is proclaimed as the true God. And Elijah thought this must be the beginning of a revival. This must be the beginning of the people turning back to God. But immediately afterwards, Queen Jezebel sends to kill Elijah. She sends messengers to go and arrest and execute Elijah. And he flees into the wilderness. And he's miserable. He's depressed. He says to God, it's not worth me even staying alive because he thinks he's utterly failed and he tells God I'm the only one who's left it's only me it's only me who still worships you but you know what God said to him God said to Elijah no you're not there are 7,000 men who haven't bowed the knee to Baal Elijah thought he was alone. He thought he alone was amongst the faithful. But there were 7,000 other people who were on God's side as well, even though he did not know about them. In a sense, that's a similar mistake to what these disciples had made. God's kingdom is bigger than we might imagine. It's never big. It's always small, but sometimes we make it narrower than it really is. Tragically, it is very easy to be like these disciples and get very narrow-minded about who is or who is not a true follower of Christ. And these two passages in Matthew 12 and in Mark 9 help protect us from opposite errors. In Matthew 12, Christ gives us the test so we know who is truly on Christ's side. If people reject Christ, 
they're not on his side. If they reject his words, they are not on his side. If you want to know if someone is truly a follower of Christ, listen to what they say about Christ. More than that, look at what their lives say about Christ. Uh, Jesus himself said, didn't he? Why do you call me Lord and yet don't do the things that I say? It's not enough simply to say Lord Jesus Christ. Um, It's easy to do that in prayer. What matters is, is he really Lord? Do you do what he says? That will demonstrate, as James himself said, that will demonstrate whether we really trust in him or not. And that's what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 12. He's saying, if you don't listen to me, if you do not acknowledge me, if you deny me, then you are not my follower. If you are not for me, you are against me. But in Mark chapter 9, Jesus is showing that this man did not reject Christ. In fact, this man accepted Christ. Now, we don't know how much or how little this man knew of Christ, but he knew enough to cast out these demons in Christ's name. And that was all that was needed. Uh, It reminds me, I heard over this Easter break, a sermon by uh, Alistair Begg. I'm sure many of you will know Alistair Begg, a um, pastor in the United States. And he gave a sermon on the thief on the cross. You remember how Christ was crucified with two thieves. And he imagines in that sermon what it would be like for that thief to enter heaven just a few hours after Christ had told him, today you will be with me in paradise. And he imagines uh, uh, an angel coming up to this man and asking him, how are you here? Why are you here? He, he looks at the record and sees this man's life. A thief, a robber, a murderer, a rebel. And he asks, how are you here? And the man's got no response. All he can say is, the man on the middle cross said I could come. That's all he knew. That's all he could say. But it was enough because he accepted Christ. He didn't reject him, he received him. Now, of course, if he had lived longer, if by some miracle he had survived the cross, no doubt he would have learned more and he would have um, demonstrated fruit of his faith. But that wouldn't have saved him. What saved him was his simple acknowledgement of Christ. And as Christ says here, he who is not against us is on our side. If someone acknowledges Christ, if someone truly listens to him and trusts in him and follows him, then they are on our side, even if they may not do things all the same ways that we do them. We need to understand what it means to be a true believer. Uh, The disciples objected that this man wasn't in their particular group. And sadly, this can be such an issue 
amongst the church today. I mean, we have how many different denominations, and there are reasons why we have the the denominations we do. Uh, In many ways, it's not a bad thing, but it is a bad thing if it means we think that people who are true believers are not true believers. It reminds me of my granddad always used to say uh, about committee meetings, how you could often have a committee of 10 people with 11 opinions. And that kind of describes human nature, doesn't it? Uh, It's so easy to fragment and argue and dispute and lose sight of the main thing, as these disciples did. Again, it reminds me of a story of a man who was stranded on an isolated island. And he was alone on this island for many years, and so he made himself shelter, and he did the best that he could. Uh, You'll see that this story is not true, but you'll get the idea. Uh, Eventually, the island was discovered, and the man was rescued. But before they left, the man decided to give his rescuers a tour of the island. And he showed the people his hut, and he proudly said, This is the home I built with my own two hands. Uh, He then showed them another building, and he said, This is the church that I built with my own two hands. But on the way back, one of the people noticed another building. And he inquired of the man, what's that building over there? And the man said, oh, that's where I used to go to church. (laughs) Do you see? We can separate, we can divide in the most foolish ways. There are reasons why we do need to divide sometimes. Uh, There are reasons why we, when we have to take a stand. But let's make that stand on what is most important, who Christ is and what he has done. That is what matters most of all. That's what Jesus taught in Matthew 12, and it's actually what he teaches in Mark chapter 9 as well. It is not a contradiction. It is merely the same truth taught from different angles. I don't think I can close any better than just reading uh, Paul's words in Philippians chapter 4, verses 2 to 3. Uh, And in these verses, uh, Paul narrows down this teaching to not just arguments about churches or denominations but to individuals in the church. Because this truth applies on the large scale, but also on the small scale as well. Uh, We can have great organisations which disagree and dispute and argue, but you can also have individuals who argue. And in the Philippian church, there was a couple called Odius and Sintichi, and they had a disagreement, they had a dispute. This is what Paul wrote to them. He said, I implore Iodia and I implore Sintichi to be of the same mind in the Lord. Every word there is important. He says, be of the same mind, but in the Lord. Not of the same mind out of the Lord, not of the same mind rejecting the Lord, but be of the same mind in the Lord. 
And that is the fundamental teaching here of Mark chapter 9. He who is not against us is on our side. Whoever gives a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, assuredly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. So I trust that we'll meditate on these words and uh, ensure that we keep what is the main thing, the main thing that we might love those who truly belong to Christ, but also stand for the truth when we must. And with those thoughts in mind, I've chosen uh, as our last hymn, number 668. Uh, 668, a uh, hymn all about Christ and our response to him. Uh, 668, my Jesus, I love thee, I know thou art mine. For thee, all the pleasures of sin I resign. My gracious Redeemer, my Saviour art thou. If ever I loved thee, my Jesus, tis now. So we'll stand to sing number 668.